Welcome to Brave, Bold, Brilliant. Your host, Jeanette Linfoot, talks to incredible people about their experiences and unleashing their full potential. From the boardroom tables of big international business to the dining room tables of entrepreneurial startups, embracing opportunities, overcoming challenges, taking risks, while staying true to yourself is where the magic happens. Hi, it's Jeanette here. If you're enjoying Brave, Bold, Brilliant, I'd love it if you'd subscribe, share with your friends and leave a five-star review. Let's do it. Here's the show. So welcome to the Brave, Bold, Brilliant podcast. I am here today with such an inspirational lady in the world of travel. She is the founder and CEO of the social enterprise company Charitable Travel also transgender. So we're going to hear about Melissa's journey when she actually transitioned from a man to a woman while she was the managing director of Funway. And that was over 12 years ago. So we're going back a while now. But Melissa, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Jeanette. And that's, um, wow, that was a big introduction. I don't think I've ever had the sort of transgender side of it brought in before. So that's new. Um, new ground, but excellent. Oh, it's great to have you here, Melissa. It really is. And, um, you know, I think you're, you're a personality that's very well known in the travel industry. But more than that now, with everything you're doing, you know, in the charity space, and you've got so much to your life story to share that I'm really looking forward to having this chat with you. It's going to be great. So thank you for making the time in your diary. Appreciate and thank it. You for, thank you for inviting me. I'm 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 flattered and honoured. Thank you. Ah, oh, very good. Well, listen, Melissa, why don't we kick off with your journey and um, just give us a, a quick canter through and then we're going to dig in from there and talk about all sorts of interesting things. Sure, I can I can give you the potted career history. I, I like many people, I fell into the travel industry and where I fell in was um, ILG in 1987, uh, working uh, for Intersun Skyworld. Um, my first boss in travel was uh, Michael Vinales, who's now MD at Olympic, I think. So uh, yeah. we, we've kept in touch ever since. Um, and uh, having not intended to be in the travel industry, it did what it does to most people. It bit and I got the bug and I can't imagine doing anything else. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I stayed at Intersum for a while, really sort of loved that and the camaraderie. and. Um, uh, left and joined a ski operator called Mark Warner um, and um, really sort of moved into management there, um, looking after their ski and beach club operations from a reservations operations um, admin side. Um, and then moved on to um, the product and marketing arena, working for a wonderful company called Premier, um, Premier Holidays in Cambridge. Um, working for Supat Perth Renford Sargent, um, a great, great company. Um, and um, as sometimes happens, I got headhunted to set up um, a, an Asia tour operator called Asia World at the end of the uh, end of 2009. Um, and uh, that, that was a wonderful experience, working for remote bosses out in Hong Kong, um, trying to build a brand, um, I love that. And it was setting up an office and, uh, you know, real, really good experience, character building, as they say. <laughs> um, 
and from from there I um, went with the furniture when Asia World was sold to Argo Holidays um, and we morphed into Jet Life which had been a collaboration of Jet Life Holidays and America Specialist and Asia World um, joining together under the um, Argo Holidays banner and I was product director there um, working with another very well-known face in the industry, Chris May, who'd been another of my bosses at Premier. So we were working together again um, and then um, stayed there and uh, and then joined Funway in 2008 um, and stayed for 11 and a half years, the last two and a half as MD, MD and um, took a redundancy option in uh, 2019. And that's really where my private enterprise travel career stopped and my social enterprise travel career started. Wow. So, gosh, such a huge um, number of brilliant roles you've had, Melissa, over the years. And and I guess the thing that, that sort of strikes me as you were talking about all of that was whilst, you know, some of those were within uh, the construct of a, a more corporate organisation, actually all quite entrepreneurial businesses, weren't they? So was that a natural choice for you or did it just kind of evolve and you you gravitated towards those more innovative, smaller businesses that were a bit more agile? I think I, I, I think I've always enjoyed working um, a lot more closely with the team and with the owners and with the management. It, it felt a lot more purposeful, a lot more meaningful um, working for, for those and including Funway, which up until it was sold in 2018 was um, was a family business. So, mm. you know, that thread has pretty much followed the whole way through my career. And I, and I think for that reason, I, I can't say, I can't say absolutely um, it was deliberate, but it was a happy, um, fortuitous career progression. Um, and, and I felt with all of those businesses, I made a real difference. Yeah, you know, I mean, that that's clearly a theme for you, isn't it? Making a difference, you know, and in particular what you're doing now with, you know, charitable travel and all of the, the kind of offshoots that are happening from that business as well in such a short space of time. And, and you definitely strike me as that kind of person, Melissa, that does want to, you know, make an impact and, and do, do a lot of good through the process as well, you know? I think so. And I think private enterprise, I, I've always regarded travel as being a massive force for good, particularly um, when you look at tourism development in the developing world, you know, sustainable and responsible issues aside, um, I've always regarded travellers making a huge difference to communities that had little else before um, tourism arrived. And, and I think the opportunity to do that in smaller um, family owned and managed um, collaborative environments has kind of added to that. I think you're right. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, I mean, you know, at Funway, you were there in over 11 years, as you said, and, you know, obviously a, a great happy time during that period. And, and you know, to get to the point that you were running the business in the last last couple of years that you were there. And I know you left, you said you left, you had a redundancy opportunity to take. Did you know what you were going to go into, Melissa? Because I think a lot of people, especially right now, they might be at a bit of a crossroads and thinking, oh, you know, do I stay where I am? And maybe you haven't got a choice to stay where you are. Some people are facing, you know, maybe a, a change that is probably more forced upon them than chosen. But nonetheless, I think it's a really interesting topic around, you know, when is it right to make that jump? 
what was the kind of catalyst for you? And did you know what was going to happen next? Or did you just think, I'll just give it a go and see see how things play out? I think, um, you know, the, the catalyst really at Funway was the acquisition of Funway as a business by the Apple Leisure Group. Um, mm. at, at that point, which in turn is KKR, KSL and the Lamakia family, um, quite rightly, um, organisations like that um, go through a process of looking at structure, looking at um, efficiencies, looking at best practice. Um, and I'd been working on that with leadership in the US together with um, a counterpart in another of the European businesses that are part of the Apple Leisure Group. Um, and it, it came to a logical point where for all of those efficiencies, effectiveness reasons, um, the idea of not, not having two leaders over two businesses based mm. in Europe seemed to make a huge amount of sense. And it's the irony of being in, in a leadership position that you, you you occasionally get to the point where you make your own role re- redundant. Um, and, 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 you know, and, and obviously you don't quite know um, exactly how that's going to shake down. But it, but it absolutely was what we um, proposed. Now, I, I'd had some thinking before that, seeing, you know, seeing where it had come, seeing where it had come from, where it was going, and the opportunities moving forward. Um, and I'd had this idea about social enterprise travel, and parallel to that, setting up a charity for a little while. Um, and I knew that it was something that I wanted to bring to bear. Once I left, um, uh, but I think the, uh, without getting into too much detail, the opportunity of having a role made redundant um, actually presented an opportunity to have some time and space to actually um, create that social enterprise travel company um, without the pressure of thinking, oh my God, what am I going to do next? Where am I going? Um, What I think I realised at the end of my tenure at, um, at Funway was I had some choices, did I? And I think you alluded to that before. Do I um, do I go around and look for another leadership, senior leadership role in another travel company and see if there is one that suits me and I feel comfortable with? Do I take a step back and, and rest back on my commercial or product and purchasing experience, look at a kind of uh, move perhaps into a bigger organisation, um, and many friends and so forth said, "Well, I don't understand why you don't set up your own business. Why don't Why don't you do this?" And I'd never been particularly um, driven by the idea of creating a private enterprise for the sake of creating a private enterprise. Um, you know, it really it really didn't feel right to me. So this kind of nurtured idea of 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 creating a travel company that replaces shareholder value with beneficiary value really appealed to me to keep me connected with the industry, um, to keep me leveraging all of the experience. I mean, obviously, um, I've been in the industry for 34 years and uh, you would never know that, of course, looking at me. Of course not. (laughs) I started when I was five. Um, (laughs) Um, but you know, I, I, you know, the whole how do I leverage my commercial, my love for commerciality, my love for making money, um, uh, my love for the industry, but actually deploy it in a way 
that makes a social difference and creates um, this beneficiary value rather than solely um, shareholder value. Mm, yeah, I mean, yes, and there's so much in what you've just said there, Melissa. So I think, you know, when you're at a point of, you know, I, I guess I, just a crossroads, really, in terms of what the choices you are, you always have different options. You know, everyone has options, don't they? Sometimes it's hard mm. to see those options. But I think, you know, what you just covered there is great advice for people that might be thinking around a change. And what do they do next? You know, just take take a bit of time to step back and just calmly think, oh, OK, well, I could do this. I could do this. I could do that. Which one is really going to rock my boat at this point mm. of my career? And I think sometimes, you know, when you've got a little bit more experience and a few years under the clock kind of thing, <laughs> you yeah. know, you probably have a bit more self-awareness of, of what's important to you in the next phase of your life. And um, I think, you know, that's great that you made that change. And it's clearly a change that you're absolutely flourishing with. And some people would say to you, well, hang on a minute, Melissa, aren't you a bit mad starting a new business in the travel space just at the middle of the start of a pandemic? I mean, what the hell are you thinking of, woman? <laughs> yeah, I, I, am, I am certifiable. I think we've established that. Um, no, I think I think it, I think you're absolutely right, and and I kind of in my travel career, you, you you go through periods. I mean, I pretty much loved every day, but you go through tough times, and you go through things, you know, these character building periods of time where you have to do some things in our in our up and down world of travel. Making people redundant is horrible, um, you know, having to make painful decisions, and also making really exciting expansion decisions is, is fantastic. But I think what it boils down to for me is happiness. What makes you happy? Because um, if something's not going to make you happy, um, then to, to go off and do that in the pure pursuit of money, I, I have a, so much sympathy for people that have had to do that, mm. you know, it, you know, to, to pay the bills and to, um, you know, and to have to go into it, to work every day, um, not happy, it, it, it must be an awful existence. And I've been blessed in the fact that I've been able to um, have amazing days and have choices um, where I can truly think about what makes me happy and what creates purpose um, combined with work. Yeah, no, absolutely. You're right. And, uh, you know, life is too short, isn't it, to not enjoy what you do and who you spend time with as well, I think is really important, Melissa, you know, because sometimes we, we're not always surrounded by people that are going to lift us up and encourage us. Sometimes we have people saying, oh, what the hell are you doing that for? Or maybe just yeah. aren't on the same path or journey as you. And that's fine, isn't it? But actually, you know, to make those choices and to to make sure you are surrounding yourself with the right people and 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 you know fulfilling your dreams really is so critical. No, I I, I, t I totally agree, and and I think you know we we talk perhaps a little bit about social enterprise. Um, you know, I I kind of made that decision to replace um, private enterprise with social enterprise, and I respect the fact that that is an incredibly difficult decision for people to do when they have beneficiaries themselves, kids, you know, family networks that they have to continue to protect, you know, there's this overriding need that, you know, I've got to build up an asset that's going to protect me both in retirement, but also look at, you know, what am I going to give to my kids or what am I going to give to those that depend on me for financial security into the future? Now, in, in my case, and I'm not unhappy about it at all, um, I have a fair family of four um, and, you know, I have brothers and sisters and, and my family, but I, but I actually don't need to protect that 
kind of legacy value um, mm. moving on. So social enterprise, where actually, yes, I, I need money to pay the mortgage, I need money to pay the bills, but I only need what I need. Um, I don't need more than I need, and I don't need to protect that kind of legacy value for anybody. Um, so, so social enterprise made a huge amount of sense to me. I don't think it necessarily makes a huge amount of sense to someone who don't do, who does have those issues um, mm. That, mm. that they're worried about in 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 the future. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and ta- just to, just give us the the sort of the heads up on charitable travel then, what it's all about, Melissa, how it works, and then we're gonna we're gonna flip into some other some other aspects of your career in life after that. If that's all right. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so charitable travel is um, a registered social enterprise. We're what's known as a community interest company. Um, and um, it's a type of company that was um, recognised and established by the government in 2005. And what it enables is companies um, and, and founders of companies to set up um, in such a way that there's limited liability and they can and the company can function in exactly the same way as a regular um, limited company private enterprise. But it changes um, in two fundamental ways. One is it requires a social enterprise requires to have a community um, a community benefit statement or a social purpose, as otherwise known. Um, and that is closely guarded by a regulator to make sure that you're not in some way saying you're a social enterprise and actually you're doing no good for society whatsoever. Um, <laughs> and um, it also asset locks um, the, the entity so that no profit can leave the social enterprise unless it's given to um, an approved charity, again, approved by a regulator. Mm. So we're, we're kind of exactly like a limited company, but fundamentally different in two ways, those two ways. And our social purpose is to help um, our customers donate to their choice of charity whenever they're making a booking and to help charities um, use travel as a way of fundraising for their good causes. Um, in every other respect, we're a, an, an online travel agent. I was absolutely thrilled um, before Christmas to be shortlisted by Travel Trade Gazette in the um, top five online travel agencies in the in the UK, which um, I think is testament to the amount of coverage and um, awareness that we've created in a in a short space of time mm-hmm. with yeah. some amazing illustrious company that we were in, considering we. We launched, as you say, at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, <laughs> <laughs> just, just amazing to me, and, and I'm humbled that, that that we were recognised in that way. Um, and so, the way it works on a day-to-day basis is a customer books a holiday with us. Um, they can then uh, donate five percent of that holiday price to the charity of their choice. And once they've made that donation, we then deduct five percent from our margin out of their holiday price so that the donation doesn't cost them anything. Right. Brilliant. Gosh, fantastic. So actually, you know, obviously you've got the travel side, but you've got the charitable side. And just give us an example of some of the charities that you work closely with, Melissa, just to give an idea. Yeah, we we have around 120 charities now that are under partnership with us. Um, It doesn't mean that um, our customers have to give to those 120. They can give to the charity of their choice. But we have some um, really high-profile high charities like Alzheimer's Research UK, 
like Movember, like Cats Protection. Um, uh, and also, and, and what I'm really pleased about is that we also help some really small charities um, because it isn't for us um, around whether you've got 500,000 supporters. Um, it, it's around what you're trying to do as a charity and, and what benefit you're trying to create. So, so we've got charities that, um, you know, turn over less than 50,000 a year um, that are very um, regionalised. You know, we're helping a, a charity in, in, in Wales that is based around a church. Um, you know, but in the scale of things, if their supporters then book travel, um, even if 20 of them book travel and each of them are spending, you know, a thousand pounds, that's still going to create them a thousand pounds worth of donation value through that 5% model that they wouldn't have otherwise got. And that money would have gone somewhere else into the ether rather than um, supporting a charity with it. Yeah. So some great some great names and, and growing all the time. Yeah, it's wonderful. It really is. And, and anyone that's listening that, you know, wants to to kind of book their travel and do good at the same time, travel for good. It's it's a brilliant, a brilliant model that you've got there. And in fact, actually, I know you work very closely with um with the charity My Life Films, who's a good friend of mine. Um, you're yes. Roth. And My Life Films makes um films for dementia sufferers and their families. I mean, it's incredible charity, but like you say, maybe a charity that wouldn't be so well known you know, uh, amongst the big ones like cancer research and Alzheimer's, et cetera. Mm. So I think it's great you have that mix of bigger charities and, and the smaller ones as well. Really amazing. Fantastic. Yeah, we, we, I mean, we love, you know, the passion of people like York and the team at, at My Life Films, um, you know, likes like other charities like Just a Drop, the Family Holiday Association within the industry. But, but, but I love the passion that they have for what they do. And I love the fact that we can create money out of nothing um, to help their causes. I mean, as you say, My Life Films are just launching My Life TV, which yeah. is incredibly innovative um, and really does make a difference to people suffering from dementia and those in their support network. Um, and to think that, you know, if 10 of their supporters um, book a holiday, we can physically make a difference by um, deploying filmmakers to go in and film uh, create these memory jogging films for people that are really suffering and, and it really grounds them so you can see tangible aside from the good that travel does overseas and the difference it makes to communities mm. you can actually see travel turning into a way that makes makes a difference across so many different great causes at a time you know we, we know how travel's been affected by the pandemic but Charity has been yeah. devastated by the pandemic um, in terms of its events program and its fundraising. So it's going to be a wonderful thing to watch travel help charity sector through what we're doing. Yeah, no, it's, it's wonderful. So thank you for sharing that, Melissa. It really brings it to life, what you're doing. So that's great. So I just want to um, come back to a point that you raised earlier about happiness, Melissa, and about doing what makes you happy in life, whether that's professionally or personally. 
And, you know, you said I, I, I kicked off with quite a bold intro um, to this <laughs> is called Brave, Bold, Brilliant, this podcast. So we've got to live and breathe those values. <laughs> but listen, can I take you back to 2008, I think it was, when you made that decision or maybe you've been making a decision to lead up to, to, the, tr- to the transition that you made at that time? And just because I think it's going to really mm. help people to understand how you went about that, what were the emotions and everything associated with that, because it's it's such an incredible, um, you know, thing that you did, but also comes back to that happiness point about making sure that you're being true to yourself, mm. I guess, and being being authentic in everything that you do. I think I I, I, I totally agree that happiness is 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 vital, and I, and I I look back on my pre transition life, and I and I'm, I'm not sad um, in any way. I I kind of felt conflicted. Um, you know, from a, from early teenage years, about my gender identity, and um, I think in the in the age that it was in the sort of seventies and you know seventies and early eighties, um, uh, you know, the lack of internet, the lack of ability to actually understand, huge amounts of fear uh, about mm. oh my god, you know, if I if I if I really delve into these feelings and delve into why I feel like this. How is that going to, you know, am I going to get beaten up? Am I going to be disowned? Am I going to be, um, you know, completely alienated from society? So I think it's a common story within um, transgender people in particular that um, they go under deep cover and try and uh, be in inverted commas normal and try and conform with what society expects of a person of a certain gender mm. and I, I was no different to that I think I, I think where, where it came out uh, where it where it sort of where I hid was being a workaholic um, you know I, I filled my brain with work um, you know it, you know I used to work ridiculous amounts of hours and I not to say I didn't love it I absolutely loved it but that was my that was my um, mechanism to cope with feelings that I had and uh, issues around my gender dysphoria um, that came and went as I was in my sort of 20s and 30s. Um, I, got, um, I got married. I did all the things that, you know, one would expect, uh, a, you know, a young man and a growing man to, to do, trying to fit in. Um, but I think that um, you mentioned it as well, um, Jeanette, earlier on about that. You get to a certain age of confidence and you and you get to a certain age where you where you where you begin to think about well what's really important and what why why how do you feel deep inside? Um, a couple of things kind of triggered and brought to the brought to the fore how I felt. Um, you know, I'd I, I'd hidden from those that were nearest and dearest from me to me exactly how I felt. And that, you know, that's still pretty painful to think about how I hurt those that love me the most because I couldn't be authentic and I couldn't mm. share. But the angst that was building up as my understanding was growing about how I felt um, was really taking a mental health toll. Um, you know, it, I, I, was, I was functioning really well at work, but outside of work, it was really tough. You know, I kind of had that front stage, backstage kind of life yeah. where, you know, you, you kind of, you cover, a, you know, you try and cover up the, 
the cracks and function function as normal. But the the stuff that was going on in, in my head wasn't a, wasn't a it wasn't a good thing, and it and it certainly could, it wouldn't have necessarily ended well if I hadn't had that kind of catalyst. A couple of things that really um, led to me confronting how I felt, and really the the first stage of that was having having the impetus and the uh, and the courage is probably not the word because it's not courage really. It's it's desperation to go to a GP and say I don't know what this is. I don't know why I feel this way, but mm. this is how I feel. Um, that set me on to a pathway um, in my sort of late thirties, early forties of uh, of kind of really trying to work out um, what what it all meant. Um, and I, you know, and I think when I think back to those times, it was it it was a mixture of relief that my secret you know and, and my uh, and my true self was was out there and it was you know it's not quite like quite coming out but 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 you know that that process of self-realization and that reconciliation process almost with yourself where you've had totally different lives you've got this massive front stage this front that you've put up of seemingly being normal in inverted commas um, mm. but then in, in behind knowing that there's not some there's something not right that that process then um with counseling with the national health service who were absolutely brilliant i mean you know thank the lord that i was born in a in an era where um you know that where we were in where um there was a pathway there was an understanding of gender identity and gender dysphoria um you know, I, I think the peace and the, uh, you know, as I move through that process, yes, the pain of the past and the pain of hurting people um, because I couldn't share before. But then at the same time, the mental, the, 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 the almost the release of pressure and, and that and, and that hiding away, um, you know, it w- was liberating. Um and I got to a point um, where, unfortunately, my marriage ended, which I, I understand. Um, you know, it's it, it. You know, it is. It. it, it I guess it was going to be one of the casualties of of what happened. Um, you know, and in living on my own again and having that freedom um, to to be me. Um, and I know some of these things sound really cliche, but actually. Um, you know, actually, that's that's what it felt like. It felt like liberation, and then that final step of going in, you know, in March two thousand and eight to see my MD at Funway at that time, and say, you know, well, here's the thing, um, <laughs> here's the thing. This is, you know, one of the most difficult conversations apart apart from those in my personal life, in my professional life. Wondering what on earth was going to happen. Um, wondering, you know, what my boss was going to say, wondering how my colleagues um, would react. Because I, I, I like to think that, well, and I pretty much know from feedback afterwards that nobody had any idea. Um, you know, I, I, for God's sake, I had a beard for most of my adult life, um, which I think was part of the camouflage. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, um, 
you know, that fear and that, that what, you know, thinking what on earth is going to happen, my life's going to fall apart. Um, but my faith in human nature and the industry in which I, I'm being privileged to work and the people within that industry and how they were so supportive and how they were, that they kind of embraced that, you know, like many people have said, and, I, and frankly, I don't understand it either. I don't understand why I am like I am. Um, but, and many people don't either, or most everybody doesn't either. But the fact is, you know, they accept and, mm. you know, they, they, they embrace and, and, and it's, you know, the Funway team, I'm getting quite upset about it now. That the fun, the Funway team, where I transitioned in 2008, and actually Fourth of July was my Independence Day, um, 2008. You know how they allowed me to do that, and how they accepted me from one minute being a product director, you know, uh, you know, to the next minute wearing a, uh, a skirt suit as a product director, and how they just accepted me for me. Um, you know, was was incredible. Yeah, that's. I mean, it's just it's an emotional. You, you know, I can see the emotion in, and hear the emotion in your voice as well, Melissa. And uh, incredibly, I feel very incredibly humbled that you you know you you're talking so candidly. And I think for people listening, this is just massively helpful because many people will know your story, but other people won't know your story. Um, so it's really really amazing to hear it and to share. And what would you say? How 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 important were role models? Were there role models that you could kind of have an affinity to through through that whole period, or was it very much that you were you were kind of figuring out on your own? We, you know, yes, with the support of the GPs and the people that you had around you, but was there was there anyone that was kind of there that you could go, oh yeah, actually that person's done this, I can I can kind of follow them, or or, or not so much. I think I think um, I think the internet in in general. Um, for for someone going through that experience, um, and you know, and, and, and any sort of experience of of, of con- considering feelings and how they feel, and and, and it, the internet is an amazing thing. And I don't think there was any kind of one role model or collection of role models because I think everybody's experience is different. I mm. think um, I think age, in my case, in terms of maturity and um, self-awareness and um you know you kind of get to forgive the phrase but the sod it stage I don't I don't <laughs> care what anybody I don't care what anybody else thinks ultimately other than the people that love me I care what they think I yeah. you know I you get to a point where you can just accept the fact that you're doing this for your own happiness it's almost in you know it's, it's a survival thing in the end because the alternative of continuing that kind of double existence is, is incredibly mentally stren- strenuous um, you know when when it starts to to really come to bear but but no 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 role models a lot of people I'm thankful for for their for, for their understanding their acceptance you know not least um you know family my dad was one of the first people outside my immediate you know uh, family unit that that I told and um he was he was incredible just you know more scared for me and what he worried about might happen to me and Mm. what society might think and my colleagues in the industry um, might think 
more worried about that than than what I was actually doing and why and what I was going through. Um, my brother, you know, same. Um, but my close circle of friends, you know, I I can still remember like it was yesterday the first time I told my my sort of my closer friends that this is what was going on um you know maybe a year to 18 months before I told work and um they they saved me because outside of work I could be myself Mm. until that point where you reconcile both um work and home life so it's, I mean, you know, the word transition in, in this example, clearly gender transition, but literally that evolution and transition of, you know, telling those closest to you first, living, a, I suppose, a slightly double life for a period of time, then getting comfortable with that to the point that then you said, actually, no, I need to I need to be my whole self in work as well. And, and that's so that sort of evolution of step by step. Um, is is kind of how it's it's you know formulating in my mind from what you've described this and um, what you've described, yeah. Melissa. I think I, I think the one thing that you can't take you know from my personality is I'm pragmatic, um, <laughs> and, and I, I'm I think I, I regard myself as a pragmatist, and and yeah. so I approached what well, once I'd kind of got over the initial incredibly tough emotional experience of. Of, of having to deal with that with my my spouse and my immediate family mm-hmm. um it there's so much good advice out there there's so much good support um about how to how to approach that process um in a in, in a in a way that protects yourself by respecting the people around you um mm. you know much as i would love to have gone around dressed like Britney Spears at the time, I know, and everybody else knows that I can't get away with that. And society would give you a kicking um, if you try and, uh, sadly, in a way, if you try mm. to be non-conformist. You, you know, we have this very binary, you know, with this very binary view of the world, which doesn't, when it comes to gender. You know, clearly we've we've moved on a lot when it comes to sexuality, um, and we're getting there when it comes to gender. We really mm. we really are society, particularly in the UK. I mean, you know, we, we could talk forever about uh, about transgender people in less accepting societies is is, is a tragic situation. Mm. Um, uh, but but I think we we're, we're we're getting there. But still, there's a, an expectation that you are one or the other. Um, yeah. You know, whereas actually, in truth, am I one or the other? I, I often, you know, I, I I kind of think that it would be wonderful to get to a point where a person is just a person. How they present and how they are accepted should really be an individual's personal choice, and they should be judged on who they are um, from a personal standpoint and what they do, and from a professional standpoint on how they conduct themselves, what they can achieve and what difference they can make. If we could get to that point without that absolute sort of binary one or the other, um, that would be true progress. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, but it's still, we're still not there yet. And there are some amazing people, you know, Grayson Perry, um, Eddie Izzard, you know, not, you know, they're not necessarily transgender, but they are challenging um you know that binary 
um, that binary perspective on gender, regardless of sexuality. Um, you know, I think I go back to the Funway conversation and, and, and say that I was in an incredibly accepting environment who valued what I did and who I was more than what I looked like and what I was wearing and how I chose to present myself. And testament to that was, you know, what, um, 2008, I'm just thinking, yeah, maybe nine, eight, nine years later, I got promoted to managing director. And that's, to me, an enlightened company that, that doesn't, you know, doesn't look at those issues. It looks about who you are, what you stand for, and what you can do and the impact you can have on your colleagues. And certainly transition made me a much more authentic, empathic, understanding, um, certainly made me less um, defensive, you know, and um, as a person, I'm much more open than I was when I was hiding. Wow. Yes. Gosh, incredible. And when when you actually, you know, you, you made that move and you had the conversation with your boss, you had actually planned sort of a, a series of next steps, had you, when you actually went in, you know, you didn't just go in and blurt it out and then go, oh, my God, what now I've dropped the bomb. What do we, what happens next? You, you had quite an orchestrated plan, didn't you, Melissa? Yeah, there, there's there's some really good um, non-profits out there. One's um, the um, uh, Gender Identity Research um, Organisation, which had supported a number of people through transition at work, um, you know, and clearly by 2008, the law was on your side, um, but it it was never about legal protection. It was about um, managing that process so that you didn't affront everybody around you suddenly, mm. you know, suddenly turning up the next day wearing something completely different and lipstick on, you know, would have would have affronted everybody and there would have been Oh, you know, that that would have been a lot harder. So um, I supported Funway um, by helping them go through this process or that process in a, in a very pragmatic, sensible way. Um, for example, you know, providing documentation that explained gender identity and, and, uh, and being transgender so that that could be shared with the workplace. By uh, managers, then I went, I went off for four days. Managers met with team members. I had um, they suggested you have a photo shoot done, um, not not a, not a glamorous not a glamorous <laughs> shoot, um, but a, a photo shoot of what you look like, you know, and what I look like at the weekends, um, yeah. you know, with the skirt suit on, with you know, wearing uh, women's clothes, and and so you they could show those photos so that when I turned up on the Monday morning. Um, which I did at about seven o'clock in the morning, nervous as hell. Oh um, gosh! Yeah. <laughs> um, you know that that everybody knew, everybody understood. You know what this was about. This wasn't this wasn't a lifestyle choice. It was a, a necessity, um, mm. and 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 that process with the support of my boss at the time and the team and the Lamakia family who owned Funway at the time was was incredibly well handled, um, and then. You know how do how do you tell suppliers? You know many, uh, you know many suppliers. I, I was a buyer, you know pri- primarily a buyer and product person at the time. You know how how on earth do you put that across to multiple cultures? Mm. You know the you know how do they understand and 
you know, what what do you say? And um, you know, so so thinking around that process, I think, you know, I, I've seen and read many, many cases of people with um that have handled transition and that process really badly and it's not ended well and it's been more difficult than it could have been. Mm. Um, so anyone that has that sense of change, I, I, I think try and hang on to doing it right for your sake and for everybody else's sake. Because if you do it right, um, then I, I think it can, it, you know, the society we live in, I think you can have a much better mental health journey doing that. Yeah, absolutely. And like you say, you know, the industry is incredibly, um, well, what's the word, very, very close knit, actually, the travel industry. But equally, you know, it's it's multicultural, it's global, and you're dealing with so many different cultures and, you know, quite often some quite alpha male um, you know, kind of environments as well. And, you know, how how mm. how does that how does that play out? You know, because that's something that probably a lot of the people you're talking to, they've just never ever had to even experience this or know anything about it. And um yeah. yeah. I think I think so. The other the what the, the other amazing advice I got was don't punish anybody for not getting the pronoun right, you know, okay. the, uh, and forgetting your new name and calling you by your own name. Um, and and humour was always a thing that I, that I rested on. I, I laugh at myself and I laugh about my journey because when you look at it objectively, it's hysterical. So if, if, if uh, everyone around you probably thinks this is really funny in a way and you can't criticise them for thinking it's really funny, you know, that, that, bloke over there that had a beard now he's living as a woman that in in many senses that is quite funny it's quite it's quite comical but if you can take it as being quite comical although serious Mm. um you 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 again enable acceptance rather than sort of scowling at everybody who calls you by the wrong name because they've forgotten because they've known you for 20 years in a different role you know yeah yeah. I even 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 my dad and you know his wife. I was in a garden center wearing a jean skirt and boots, um, about probably I don't know, probably six months before I transitioned, but at a weekend. And uh, my dad's wife yelled out my my former name across the garden center. I just didn't know what to do, and uh, I, I couldn't acknowledge it because everyone would look and think, what, we, what, what, what what's this about?" And so I just completely blanked her and then she suddenly realised and both of us ended up virtually on the floor in hysterics. <laughs> You're right, though, honestly. I mean, what's the saying? Laughter's the best medicine. And, and actually, if you can, because people will be worried about, did he say the wrong thing? Did he offend you? You know, are they a bit yeah. like, you know, uneducated with it all? And what does that make them look like? And I think yeah. you're right. If you can slightly lighten that tension, not not take away from the gravitas of it, clearly, but at the same time, just kind of help people to relax into it. And, and that stands for obviously your situation here, but so many situations that could be quite awkward or difficult in life. And if you can use that levity of, of kind of humour just to lighten things mm. a bit, I think that's great advice. I really do. Be, being prepared to laugh at yourself um, and not take yourself too seriously, I think is, is, a, is, a, is something that I learned through this process because I used to be dreadfully serious and, you know, kind of, I don't know, sort of self 
self-absorbed, which I probably was because I was in this kind of hiding mode and um, mm. you know, trying to get through life in a, in a role I wasn't comfortable with. Yeah, no, gosh, I mean, this is we, we could talk for hours and hours about this, couldn't we? We absolutely, we absolutely could. <laughs> um, but what I love about what I love about you, well, there's many things to love here, Melissa, right? Um, but I just feel that with everything that you've gone through, that your journey, your story, your transition, the successful career you've had, you know, in the travel industry for so many years and where you are now, it just feels like all of that has kind of come to the point where you are exactly where you should be right now with everything you're doing. I don't know if you feel like that's just a sort of sense I have from, from listening to you. I, I, I do. I mean, I'm, I'm to, to, all, to all intents and purposes, I'm in my dream job. Um, you know, I'm selling travel, um, still involved and heavily involved in the travel industry, which is a passion of mine. Um, I'm helping other people along the way, which feels a lot more, uh, it feels a lot more purposeful than what I was doing before. Right? I can see where the money is going. I can see uh, the difference that it's making and, and what's not to love about that. Um, and um, one thing we haven't touched on is um, I also founded a charity with um, five other amazing trustees from the industry um, called the Charitable Travel Fund, um, which is where the net profit from our social enterprise goes, but also um, is fundraising um, in the travel industry and hopefully beyond the travel industry into the travelling public to help people um, in communities that um, absolutely depend on tourism. But when that tourism stops... They have no safety net. They have no welfare state. They have no other, uh, nothing to pivot to. You know, we always talk about pivot and we're talking about furlough. And COVID right now um, has deeply impacted countless communities that didn't have um, perhaps resilient sources of income um, and had depended on that income from tourism. Um, you know, places like Cambodia, where we're helping a project in Siem Reap, where, which has had 100% reduction in tourism arrivals, you know, since April last year, um, tens of thousands of people solely employed in tourism who um, are now laid off because the hotels have closed um, and are virtually destitute because in Cambodia there's no uh, welfare state system. You know, in Guinea, in Africa, we're helping another project, but we want to build up and, and help more and more. Beyond COVID, whenever something happens that disrupts that travel for good income um, and, and that community needs the help back again from the tourism industry that has profited, and I, and I don't say that in a bad way, has profited mm. on the product that those um, communities um, in developing destinations have provided and given so many people incredible careers in the UK and mm. so many tourists incredible experiences. Um, we want to be there with our charity to help support those people um, until tourism resumes. Um, and that's my real passion of, of all of the stuff that I'm doing in social enterprises really about how can we position the charity to to be there for tourism communities when they need us? Yeah, you're hundred percent right. And I think you know for people that that don't realise, you know, the, the travel and tourism accounts for ten percent of global GDP. 
it is massive as a sector and and the the extended value chain and what it does in terms of impacting those local communities is huge and as you say you know in those developing destinations they you know that the the hardship the financial hardship they're going through right now is heartbreaking and and that that is leading to incredible incredible tough tough lives for people and ultimately, yes. you know, I mean, if you take India as a, as a country, I spent a lot of time in India when I had travel businesses over there when I was at TUI. And, you know, I think in the Western world, we forget, you know, you don't realise like in India, a third of the population lives on less than a dollar a day. That's like 350 million people. I mean, it, it, yeah. it's, it's phenomenal. And that's just India alone, you know. So it, I think, you know, people forget, actually, that travel is not just flippantly about people going on holiday. And that in itself is a very worthwhile thing because it's quality time together. It's all the things that we know. Um, but actually, the impact you have on the ground, as, you're, as you've described and what you're doing, is phenomenal and sometimes people don't always think about that um and just how how impactful the industry is really and i think what you're doing is amazing melissa it really is um it's giving back in so many ways so it's wonderful i think you know i think we during covid um we we've done i guess what what, what is human nature we've become very parochial mm. we've looked at what's happening down the road not what's happening in places we can't get to you know, we, we've we've raised, you know, um, bless him, RIP, Captain Tom, but raising 35 million for the NHS. Um, you know, that 35 million came from um, potential donors who might have helped international development charities, helping people in, in very challenging circumstances. Now, I'm not decrying it. I'm not saying it's wrong, but it's shifted our focus as a philanthropic country and a socially conscious country into uh, causes at home. Um, mm. You know, even, even the vaccination issue now, it's fantastic what's happening with this vaccination issue. But the lack of support for the COVAX program um, with the World Health Organization and Gavi, you know, the, the amount of or the, the lack of attention to getting vaccine into arms in the developing destinations that are going to be dependent on tourism um, mm. to, to bring them back again. You know, the, the DG of WHO said um, this pandemic won't be over for us until it's over for all of us. And mm. never a truer word said, you know, are we going to go back into Cambodia when the population hasn't been vaccinated, exporting death to Cambodia? You know, we... we you know, it's, a, it's another huge issue, aside from the income um, mm. that tourism provides, is keeping pace with vaccinations post-pandemic so that we can actually safely, and I mean safely for the people there, regardless of whether we have both vaccines or not, mm. safely for the people there, actually bring them the income they actually desperately need without yeah. hurting them. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's complex, isn't it? Actually, when you get into this, it is incredibly complex. It's not a straightforward, but you're right. Um, having that global view is is important as well as, you know, protecting and doing everything we need to do for uh, in the UK as well. You have to get that balance, don't you, where you can. Uh, I think it's great what you're doing. So, Melissa, I've got a couple of final questions for you, if I may. Or I could chat all. I could chat all day with you. I really could. Oh. Uh, <laughs> um, so, can you think of the best piece of advice you've ever been given? I know you gave some really good, insightful, um, you know, descriptions earlier of advice that you've been given. But is there one that sort of stands out for you that stayed with you? Um, tenacity. Um, never say die. Never give up. Chase 
what you believe in. Um, and, you know, I, I lived that at work for my entire career and, uh, and it's never let me down. Um, I didn't live it for 40 years in my private life um, and it hasn't let me down since um, that, that rule, that tenacity and go for it. Be truthful yeah. to your dream. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I love that. Be truthful to your dream. Yeah, that's great. And can you think of the worst piece of advice you may have been given that you either took and regretted or maybe it was so bad you ignored it? <laughs> um, I think it was that tranny that told me fashion tips when I was first um, trying to work out how to do makeup and, um, and, and what to wear. I've made more fashion mistakes thanks to bad advice from, uh, from people that shouldn't have given it. <laughs> But you've learned from those. You've learned from that. <laughs> Hopefully my Coco the Clown days are over. I'm kind of a bit more subtle with it now. <laughs> Excellent. You can come and do my makeup for me, actually. That'll be great. <laughs> Fantastic. And just a final question before we finish. What does brave, bold, brilliant mean to you, Melissa? Um, I, I think brave is about standing by your convictions and being truthful to yourself, regardless of what else is is going on. Uh, bold means the courage of your convictions, seeing it through, making sure that you chase that dream. And, and brilliant is making a difference. You know, it's not about what you can do for yourself all the time. It's what about what can you do for everybody else at the same time as your own career and your own personal life. That's what it means to me. Oh, fantastic. What a great way to end the podcast. Thank you so much, Melissa. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you. I really appreciate Thank you. it. Thank you so much, Jeanette. It's been a pleasure and an honour. Thank you. Oh. I really hope you've enjoyed Brave, Bold, Brilliant. Don't forget to subscribe and share with all your friends. And if you've enjoyed listening, I'd love it if you'd leave me a five-star review.